This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Your weekend is not complete without the First Lady of New York Radio. It's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome to the Joan Hamburg Show. You know, we do this every Sunday, starting at 2 o'clock. And we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, you name it, we're there. And you are going to have such a good time. I hope you join me this weekend. First of all, you want to go somewhere, everyone's getting stir-crazy. A great weekend opportunity, right practically in our own backyard. So we'll take a look at that. We'll take a look at what to eat. What can you do? People are coming. Do you still want to do hamburgers and hot dogs? Or do you want to do something a little bit different, maybe for your repertoire, like pulled pork on soft brioche buns or hamburger rolls? Is that hard to make? Not really, but you don't have to make it because I found something fabulous in the market. And people were like, I can't believe you made this. And I didn't dare confess that it came the way it was. All I did was put it in the microwave. It was great. And then through a journalist, a New York guy who really knows what's going on, takes us back to kids in the 70s when punk music and alternative bands became big time. We're talking about 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old kids who went to school during the day and then at night, and almost all of them under 18, at night these kids were playing, creating their own music scene. Other kids in Max's, Kansas City, I still remember Max's, and they were a unique moment in the city's musical history. And it's fascinating to hear the stories of those people who were part of this scene as kids and what happened to them as they grew up and what was the impact of music. Now, you know, music always has an impact on kids and on teens, but it's really interesting to hear about the artists and the people who were there watching them. The artists were children many cases. So we've got a lot to share with you. I think you're really going to like it. So, oh, and I've got great stories too. We're going to take you to food places. We're going to get you into Shakespeare in the park. We've got a lot going on. So you know what? Relax, stay tuned, because the Joan Hamburg Show is going to give you a lot of pleasure. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Joan Eats. The big summer recipe, and so many people have been asking us for it, is a pulled pork sloppy joe. It's easy. You can slow cook it or stick it in the oven. You don't need to stay at the grill. People are so impressed by this And I have to tell you, 
you can buy a barbecue sauce, or if you're one of these good cooks, you can make it. For a group of people, you need five to seven pounds of a boneless pork butt or pork shoulder. Get rid of the fat, cut it in pieces that will fit in a large Dutch oven or slow cooker. Make an easy rub of two tablespoons of brown sugar and chili powder. Add teaspoons of salt, pepper, onion powder, garlic, and cumin. Or buy a pork rub. I notice they have it in the market. Rub the meat. Wrap it in plastic. You can do it the night before or a few hours. Before cooking, bring it to room temperature. And there you go. Some people like to saute it in a little olive oil. In the oven, preheat it to 300. Pour a little chicken broth and vinegar. That's your secret. Into the bottom of a large Dutch oven, you can add an onion and add the seasoned pork pieces to the pot. Put the lid on three hours and remove the lid. Cook for another one or two until it's separate, you know, sort of falling apart. Shred it with two forks and barbecue sauce. Now, I have to tell you, my southern friend came over and she brought pulled pork. I was really impressed. It was delicious. She said, I bought it in the supermarket. It's called Jack Daniels, which is the name of a popular whiskey. And just buy it. It's cooked. It's ready. It's delicious. And it's inexpensive. And you know what? I did. And it's great. So there you have, to get you through the rest of the summer, one of the best sandwiches you can do or you don't even need bread with it. It's something really special. And you can always add a little chicken stock to it or reheat it in a hot oven about 400 degrees. I just serve it on a hamburger bun with coleslaw and barbecue sauce. So a good summer suggestion. More to come. Stay tuned. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. With more and more Americans wanting to travel again, and not necessarily get on a plane for a six to eight hour trip, but get in the car or do something easy. Go somewhere that's fairly close to whatever city you live in, like uh, New York. Washington, Chicago, Atlanta. Well, Elizabeth Goodridge, who's deputy editor for the travel desk at the New York Times, made me want to get up and go to a place that I hadn't really thought about in a long time, New Bedford, Mass. So you made it sound so good and you made me hungry too that I was ready to go. So tell me, you cover travel, you're going a lot of different places. What made you pick New Bedford? Sure. Um, Joan, thanks very much for this opportunity. And I have to say, I've always had New Bedford in my heart. I was a history major, and that city is one of these unsung cities of New England that has such tremendous history. 
you've got the whaling industry, you also have the mill industry, and you have this, you know, story of decline. Uh, the fishing industry collapsed, uh, the mills collapsed, so it really fell into decline for a while. But now a lot of residents are putting a tremendous amount of effort embracing their past, but also looking into their future. So it has restaurants now, in addition to some glorious museums. And being on the water isn't that bad either. You've got beautiful beaches and hiking and walking trails. No, and it was, which people don't realize, it was one of the richest cities around, especially when it came to textiles and whaling. And like so many major cities, the decline happened in the middle of or the late 20th century. And it was not a great place. Not so, at all. How long did it take, Elizabeth, to bring it back? Well, you know, there was a lot of urban blight uh, in, in the 70s and the 80s because all of these manufacturing collapsed. So a lot of people just weren't going downtown. But then a couple of local groups said, you know, we have something here. Uh, we have a lot of history in this historical district, and they still have cobblestones. So a couple of local groups got together. They used a lot of um, money, uh, federal money as well. And then they got national park status. So the whole area downtown in New Bedford is a historical district. And there's a lot more than whaling, too. New Bedford has a big history in terms of Quakerism. So it was a place for the abolition movement that really kick-started. It was one of the first recruiting stations for an all-black Civil War uh, regiment. And a lot of that um, civil rights background is another thing that these citizens now today are really trying to embrace and let the world know that New Bedford was a place for all people. Right. And it was so and it was and is so different from the vineyard where a lot of people go through New Bedford to get there. That's correct. In fact, I even talked to the art curator at the New Bedford Free Public Library. That's another amazing thing. They have an art curator at the public library. And she was pretty adamant that they're not Cape Cod. They're not the vineyard. They have a whole distinct personality. And you see that whether or not you're talking to an art curator or um, a shopkeeper at a Portuguese restaurant, there's tremendous amounts of influence from uh, the Azorian community, the Cape Verdean community, Portuguese, uh, and they're proud of their city, they're proud of their cuisine, they're proud of their culture, and it really is a unique place to visit. And did you find that there was concern about COVID when it comes to this kind of travel? You know what? COVID dramatically changed travel. Don't get me wrong. But now things are really coming back. And a lot of things we were seeing in terms of COVID, there's, those themes are still happening. National parks are still a big, big interest, uh, uh, a desired destination to go to. But city travel is coming back as well now. And COVID, uh, beware. I mean, people, I think, are just fed up with it. But still, is travel from your vantage point local? Is that what people are most interested in? Or are we seeing Europe again, where people stayed away for a while? Sure. So I, I think the question right now is what is not popular? 
because as you said, for the last couple of years, people have been staying home and now they are just frantic to get out. So Europe is booming and lots of other places are booming because everyone wants to travel. So you still got the folks who are going short distances on their car, but then you're also seeing, as we're hearing in the news, just airports just being bombarded by demand. Yeah, and the airports aren't doing as well as the destinations. And that's, I think, one of the bigger, massive changes that you'll see from COVID. The labor shortage continues to plague the travel industry. So people will see less daily housekeeping at hotels, fewer baggage handlers. And all of these is really due to the pandemic and uh, just the labor shortage that the travel industry is still enduring and facing right now. Well, it all sounds good. Where are you off to next? (laughs) Well, thanks for asking. Um, I'm actually going to be a fellow in Harvard University. So I'm going to be living in Cambridge for the next year. So my New England love. Yeah. Is that because um, you're teaching there or you're working there or going to school? Yeah, I'm going to be a fellow for an academic year. The Times has been gracious to me that I'm going to take a leave of absence and I'm going to go study how travel journalism needs to change in light of climate change. You know what? Great. Good for you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Good luck. No problem. Thank you very much. Elizabeth Goodridge for the New York Times. A really good story on a short trip that all of us from this area can go on. And a very interesting community. And so many communities have been to the bottom and are back again, like New Bedford. Thanks so much for sharing, Elizabeth. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Taking you behind the curtain, it's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Everyone um, who listens to the show knows I love stories. And when journalist Tim Summer wrote a really interesting story recently in the New York Times talking about the 70s, and the first generation of punk and alternative bands. And we're talking about kids. So it was really interesting. My kids missed this. They were sort of too young, but a really good story. And congratulations. I heard you have a book out. I Want to Be With You, The Inside Story of Hootie and Blowfish, your first book. That's right. Thank you so much. That's really exciting. And thank you so much for having me on today. No, a pleasure. So tell me, um, you've been involved with music, sort of everything New York, but since you yourself were a kid and involved in this, what brought you back to 77 and punk and alternative music? That's an excellent question because, you know, it's easy to say that people like you and I are nostalgic for those times. And 
nostalgia is a funny word because nostalgia is 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 inseparable from our memories. And the fact is, I'll tell you something about New York City. If you are 22 years old, if you are 17 years old, if you're 18 years old, whenever you are 18, whenever you are 20 years old, whenever you are 16, for every 16-year-old, their New York City, when they're 16, is always going to be their New York City. That's always going to be the best New York City. You talk to any 18-year-old on the planet, any 20-year-old on the planet, they will tell you that when they were 20, that was when New York City was the best. Now, so I refuse to go into nostalgia, but I will say what was appealing to me in terms of deciding to write about this time, and it's a time when I was 15, 16, 17 years old, what was appealing to me was how extraordinarily different a time it was. It was remarkably different. I was telling my editor at the New York Times, I was saying to them, you know, Talking about the 1970s in New York, talking about this era when 15, 14, 13-year-olds were running around to clubs, could stay out all night without needing to be in touch with their parents, without being connected to devices, it's a time that's as long ago as the era of vaudeville. It's really the, the 1920s have more in common with the 1970s than the 1970s have in common with today. Wouldn't you agree? Without question. Without question, but it was interesting because my kids sort of miss that, you know. They they this didn't exist for right. them, but I was amazed at reading this and the music world. And these were kids coming out of high school, all the high schools, private schools in Stuyvesant, all over the city. And you That's say. Exactly right. Right, these kids, some were dropouts, some were runaways, some came in from the burbs, but they were kids. They were almost all under 18 years old and obsessed with music. Well, I'll tell you two things about that, Joan. First of all, if you remember back to when you were 15 years old, you didn't feel like a child, did you? No, you felt like a fully formed adult. So these were kids who... There was nothing about the world back then that told them they couldn't function as adults. I was saying to someone, you know, you could say, in 1977, you could say to your parents, I'm going to go sleep over at Mike's. I'm going to do some studying. I'm going to sleep over. I'll go to school from there. And your parents would say, oh, okay, we'll, we'll, see you, we'll see you later. And then you could run out into the city, you could run out into the subways, you could run out to the streets, you could run out to clubs, you could do whatever you're, you want. And as far as your parents knew, you were studying at your friend Mike's house. Right. And maybe Mike lived on, uh, maybe Mike lived on Park in 91st. So your parents thought you were in Mike's, Mike's, apart, Mike's parents' apartment on Park in 91st studying, when in fact you were running out... First you went to a, to a diner for dinner, then you went to Max's Kansas City until 2 a.m., then you went to another party, then you went to another party, then maybe you met up with someone, and you went home with someone, a boy or a girl, and then you woke up in the morning, and at 6.30, well, you didn't wake up, you hadn't gone to sleep yet. At 6.30 in the morning, you're walking through Washington Square Park, and the sun is rising, and... Then you go straight to school, and your parents think you've been at your friend Mike's on 91st and Park the whole time. That's one thing I wanted to write about. The other thing I wanted to write about was the fact that, again, when you're 16 years old, 
people who are 25, 26, 27 years old, that seems like an impossibly older age. It's, it's, it's an entirely different generation. Now, as we get older, the difference between 20 and 28 or 15 and 28 doesn't seem that much. But when you're 16 years old, 28 years old, people who are 28 seem like these older generation. So these people thought of the first generation of punk rock people, the Ramones, Blondie, Talking Heads, Television, they thought of them as a different generation, as the elders of the scene, and they thought, okay, punk rock is about taking charge of your own life and your own creativity. Now it's time for us to do something for ourselves. I have a wonderful quote in the article from a, a, a musician who was a teenager at the time named Bill Arning, and Bill says... Punk rock taught us to make our own band. We never thought there was anything else we were supposed to do. Of course we were supposed to do it for ourselves. That's what punk rock taught us. And the parents still weren't involved, right? No, hardly. I mean, I'd say that once the bands, if you were in a band, like, say, the Speedies, who were playing the clubs all the time, yeah, if you're playing, it's one thing if you're running around seeing the bands, but once you're on the level of actually being a creator, actually performing in these nightclubs, needing to buy instruments, needing to find a place to rehearse, then the parents become involved. And I think, by and large, the parents of these musicians were extremely supportive. Now, as for the people who are attending the concerts, the young people going to the shows, um, I'm not. they may have been supportive, they may have not been aware at all. Um, in the piece, I, I spoke to someone named Eli Addy, who has uh, now become a major television producer. He started going to Max's Kansas City, Joan, when he was 11 years old. Hard to first, believe, and they serve these kids, too. Yeah, that's right. And at first, his parents took him. His parents thought, this will be an interesting experience for my kid. So they took him. But later on, uh, when Eli was just 12 or 13, he would wait till his parents went to sleep. They lived on like 17th Street and 3rd Avenue, not very far from Max's at all. He would wait till his parents fell asleep, and then he would sneak out of the house and go to Max's and come back before they'd ever woken up. Mm. Isn't it amazing that, that kids could do that in those days? Y yes. Now, I think it's arguable, and it'd be interesting to know what you think of this, that... When you could go off on your own like that, create your own environment, create your own world, that maybe that was more conducive to self-invention, that was more conducive to creativity, uh, it was more conducive to taking charge of your own life. Uh, some people would say that. Hmm. But you point out that at this time in the world of music and when you're looking back, the artists who participated, the people who were members of the audience, their lives changed forever. That's right. I think people were very, very inspired by seeing people their age taking control of their creativity. And it, I was there. I didn't include myself in the article because that's not the way you function with the New York Times. But in fact, I was... 15 years old when I saw the Speedies, who are a band that I talk about in this piece. I was 15 years old when I saw the Speedies for the first time. And it changed everything for me. Until then, rock bands were something that 
played on distant stages. I used to see the bands that I loved at the Palladium, or I used to see them at Woolman Rink, uh, you remember, which was a place in Central Park that had concerts. Right. And these bands were far away on distant stages. Now, here were people my age that I could reach out and touch, and they were playing wonderful, strange, complicated, catchy music. And they were right in my face, wearing amazing clothes, making amazing artistic statements, making amazing fashion statements. And they were the same age as me. And it gave me a feeling, and the reason I'm talking in the first person is, this feeling was shared by many, many young people who were attending these shows. It gave me the feeling that I could claim ownership of part of New York City's culture. I could do it too. If As these a kid. kids were that's right. If these kids in front of me were doing it, well, I could do it too. That's why you know, when I was sixteen years old, I walked into the uh office of my favorite rock magazine at the time, which was Trouser Press magazine, and it was located the office was located at forty second and Broadway, right in the heart of Times Square in the middle of the nineteen seventies. And when I was 15 years old, I walked into that office and I said, hey, you guys need an office boy. And I think that's something that was common to a lot of the people in this story. We all felt we could take ownership of our future. We all felt that New York City was this blossoming flower, this glittering prize, which we could take part in. Could that happen today? It would be unfair of me to say it couldn't, but I think there was something about the accessibility and the inability of parents to track us, track their children 24-7, that maybe gave us all a little bit of nerve. That sounds very realistic. But then... As you started growing up, how did all this influence you? Well, I think largely because of my own personal experience as a, as a witness. I was never in a band at that time. I was in bands later, but not, not at this time. As a witness to this scene, it made me feel that I could participate, that I didn't have to just be a watcher. I think that's the main thing it did, Joan. It made me feel, and I think a lot of the people I talked to in the article, including authors like Jonathan Latham and Laura Albert, and television producers like Eli Addy, and internet pioneers like Eric Hoffert, and artists like Gregory Crudson, all of whom were participants in that scene, they'll tell you the same thing. Tim, it made me feel that I could participate, right, was, that I didn't have to just watch, I you, could also create. You own some of it. That's when right. When you went to interview some of this generation, you know, now totally grown up, most of them doing things that are not really related, were you surprised at what you found this group doing? That's a good question. Um, no. No, I didn't. Because... I felt, you know, let's say that the original punk rock movement in New York, the thing that happened between 1974 and 1976, 
movement that you read about, that you hear about, that you see in movies, the movement typified by the Ramones or the Talking Heads or television or the Dead Boys or those bands, that was a movement that we watched. And because we watched it, well, that was exciting, but it didn't invite us necessarily to say, you know, now it's going to belong to you. We were, we were, we were witnesses. This scene, this scene, which was for teenagers, by teenagers, but set in the exact same adult milieu as the other scene, this scene invited us to participate. And everyone I spoke to, literally every single person I interviewed for this piece, and I probably interviewed about 12 or 15 people, every single person said the same thing. This gave me the nerve not only to be creative, but it gave me the nerve to invent my own future, to self-define in a way that I might not have felt if I hadn't been part of this amazing creative teenage venture. Um, What's so interesting about it, which I touched on in the piece, is it nothing... These clubs, specifically CBGB's in Max's Kansas City, though other clubs like the Mug Club and Hurrah, those also took part. These clubs almost never kept someone out because they were underage, despite the fact that they served alcohol. That's something that would be impossible today for legal reasons, for all sorts of reasons. Clubs wouldn't want the responsibility. Clubs would be afraid of getting sued. Nothing like that existed in 1978. Um... I think there was something about us, or I won't say us, I'll say the participants in this scene, the teenagers between the ages of 13 and 17, 18 who participated in this scene. There was something about being allowed to exist and function within an adult milieu that was very empowering. And I think that's something that's probably doesn't quite exist now. There's not something where you're 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 encouraged to work and play alongside adults and be treated as an adult. Now, there are many downsides to this. I deal with that in the article as well. The atmosphere for for drug abuse, sexual abuse is rife, but by and large, the positive effects that these people spoke about outweighed the negative effects. So if you were doing this and looking at the music scene today, is there a huge teen influence or is this something totally different? Well, teenagers are always going to be the the consumer. The music industry is always going to be driven by, by teenagers as consumers. Um, is teenage participation, I think, well... That's an interesting thing. There have always been and continue to be artists who are teenagers, but they're not necessarily people who are writing their own songs and producing their own music and arranging their own music. What was fascinating about all these bands, Joan, is that these people were writing their own music, arranging their own music, producing their own music, rehearsing their own music. This was a self-contained teenage music industry. And that, that doesn't exist today and is unprecedented. 
Um, I'm curious. I want to ask you a question, if you don't mind, Joan. Do you think there are comparables to this sort of thing at different times in New York City? Meaning, in the 1950s or 60s, were there scenes where people under 18 were treated as equals? Uh, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but let's say, would a teenager in 1965 have been able to walk into Sardi's or, 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 you know, you know, or um, 21 and been treated as an adult and been able to uh, be encouraged to be a creative and active part of that scene? I do not really recall that happening. You know, when I would go to music things, my parents generally would go or take me. Right. It was it was a totally different thing. But I grew up in a small town, and um, that music thing did not exist, at least to the best of my knowledge. Right. Well, that's what's so fascinating about this specific time. And I will say, it's something that didn't exist in 1975, and it's something that didn't exist in 1985. It is specific to this time period, which is why I wanted to write about it, specifically this era in the New York Times, why I was able to convince the New York Times to let me write about it. This scene that was completely creatively independent by teenagers, for teenagers, within an adult milieu. I'll say again, there are many pop stars in the years since and now who are under the age of 18. But they're not functioning as a self-contained industry. Even they're not writing all their own music and playing their own music and rehearsing it on their own, setting up their own rehearsal spaces. And just to be able to get out of high school have this thing to look forward to that belonged to you. It was really a magical, magical moment in New York City time. Yeah, and all these times are different, but we're lucky we have you to take a look and bring it to all of us. Congratulations so again on your new book. I thank you very much for a fascinating look at what went on in New York. And you say the year was 1977, and what happened to those people who were so involved kids? And what impact did that have on their growing up? All the best to you. It was a micro scene, but it was an extraordinary, self-contained moment in teenage New York City time. It really was amazing. Yeah, fascinating look. Thanks so much. I'm Joan Hamburg. Thank you so much. Pleasure. And you're listening to WABC. More ahead. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Ask Joan. I've been getting a lot of calls lately about Shakespeare in the Park at the Delacorte Theater. Is it something people can still do? Yes, you can. And you can enter the Delacorte Theater by going to Central Park at 81st Street and Central Park West or 79th Street and 5th. Check it out, publictheater.org. The show begins at 8 Thousands of New Yorkers and tourists enjoy world-class Shakespeare at the Delacorte, and it's free. This, by the way, is the 60th anniversary of Shakespeare in the Park, and they are performing as a gift for all of us 
a musical production of As You Like It. It's starting August 10th, and it's running until September 11th. Here's how you get your free tickets. They're returning to in-person distribution and to Today Ticks as the official digital lottery provider. Five ways to get free tickets. First, register for a public theater patron ID. You need to show the ID at the public theater box office to get the tickets. It's free. Go online, publictheater.org. They'll ask for your email, phone number, and address. It's okay. In-person distribution at Central Park. Free tickets distributed at noon every day and every day when there is a public performance. They're given out on a first-come, first-served basis. The line starts early. Come early and be smart. Bring a chair, an iPod, a book. You can start lining up, and people do, as early as 6 a.m. And you can even order food to be delivered from Andy's Deli. I'm going to give you that phone number because you're going to want it. 212-799-3355. Early gets you tickets. And every person may receive up to two tickets until they run out. Digital Lottery with Today Ticks, an easy way if you don't live in the city. Enjoy and make sure you join the Digital Lottery on Today Ticks. You'll get two tickets. You won't have to wait online. And you can download the free Today Ticks app from the App Store or Google Play Store. You then enter the lottery between noon, that's 12 a.m., and 12 p.m., on the day of each public performance. If you've won, you'll be notified between noon and 3, and you can pick up your tickets if you're a winner at 5 p.m. at the Delacorte Theater. Tickets that aren't claimed by 7.30 are forfeited to the line. In-person lottery at the public theater, that's a good way to know. It's at 425 Lafayette Street. Sign-up begins in the lobby, and they draw the winners at noon. In-person distribution, a limited number of free ticket vouchers for performances in Brooklyn, the Bronx, Manhattan, Staten Island, and Queens. Check the websites, publictheater.org. Standby line in Central Park. You can join that line, the Delacorte Theater, and they'll distribute extra tickets anytime after 6 p.m. So a little COVID information, um, they're still following Safe in the Park 22. Meanwhile, they're happy to have everyone back at the Delacorte for the 60th anniversary of free Shakespeare. But let me remind you, they require proof of a COVID-19 vaccine by the date of attendance. Masks are encouraged, but not required. Boosters are encouraged, but not required. And if you work for them, then you need a mandatory vaccine and the booster policy online. So there's Shakespeare in the Park. It's available, and it's one of the great free things in New York City. 